This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Today on Something You Should Know, why you should never go shopping when you're hungry. And it's not the reason you think. Then a rocket scientist helps you think more like a rocket scientist. And it all starts with questioning assumptions. There's a quote I love from Alan Alda. Your assumptions are your windows on the world. Scrub them off every once in a while or the light won't come in. How do you do that? Well, ask yourself from time to time, what am I doing simply because I've done it before? Then how eating fruits and vegetables can actually make you more attractive. And how and why did coffee become the world's favorite drink? Most of us use coffee to adapt our bodies to the demands of modern life. The way that we began thinking about coffee as especially useful for that purpose really dates to the 1920s. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash something. Just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. Like you, I suspect I'm waiting for life to get back to normal, or at least close to normal. And while we're waiting, in the meantime, we will continue to publish episodes of this podcast that are all about subjects I think you'll find interesting. And we start today with shopping. Of course you know, you've heard before, that you shouldn't go grocery shopping when you're hungry. People who do tend to buy more junk food and spend more money. But what about other kinds of shopping that have nothing to do with food? Well, it turns out you're more likely to buy more of anything when you're hungry, according to a study from the University of Minnesota. 
Hunger seems to put us in an acquiring mode, so shopping for clothes or toys or anything will often result in you bringing home more than you ever planned to. In the study, hungry shoppers shopping for non-food items bought 64% more than people who were full. And that is something you should know. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, it's not rocket science, as if rocket science is so hard to understand and get your head around. Well, it probably is. So how is it that rocket scientists think? What is it about their thinking that's different than the way you and I think? And how can we think more like a rocket scientist? Well, here with some interesting ideas on that is a rocket scientist. Ozan Varol was a rocket scientist, which he'll tell you about in a minute, and he is now a law professor and a podcaster. His podcast is called Famous Failures. He's also the author of a book called How to Think Like a Rocket Scientist. Hi, Ozan. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Mike. So what does it mean to think like a rocket scientist, and how is it different than (laughs) than the way I think? Because I don't think I think like a rocket scientist. (laughs) Well, that's a good question. Well, you might be thinking like a rocket scientist. You just may not be aware of it. Maybe. But basically, to think like a a rocket scientist is to, to dream big, to challenge assumptions, to actively change a rapidly evolving world. Okay, well... That sounds fun. So, so I know you have some strategies of how rocket scientists think. So let's pick, you pick one and let's dive in. Sure. I think the best example, one of the best examples might be the importance of reframing problems to generate better answers. And I'll begin with a story here, which I also recount in the book. The year was 1999. At the time, I had just started working on the operations team for what would become the Mars Exploration Rover's mission. And at the time, our mission was to send a single rover to Mars in 2003. In 1999, as we were busy designing our rover, another lander called the Mars Polar Lander crashed on the Martian surface. Now, this wasn't our baby, but the Polar Lander was using the same landing mechanism that we were planning to use. Our mission, understandably, got put on hold since our landing mechanism had just failed spectacularly on the Martian surface. And we were scrambling to figure out a way to fix the landing mechanism and come up with a new way of landing on Mars. And I remember distinctly when my boss, who is the principal investigator of the mission, he walked into my office one day and he said, I just got off the phone with the administrator of NASA and he asked, can we send two rovers instead of one? Now, it was such a simple question, but one that none of us had thought about asking before. Because up until then, NASA had just been sending one rover to Mars every two years and crossing their fingers that nothing bad happens along the way. So the question from the NASA administrator reframed the problem. The problem wasn't just the landing system. Even if we fixed the landing system, sending a delicate robot to Mars 40 million miles through outer space is really risky. Instead of putting all our eggs in one spacecraft's basket and crossing our fingers that nothing bad happens, we decided to send two rovers instead of one. The rovers were named Spirit and Opportunity. We built them to last for 90 days. Spirit lasted for six years, but Opportunity, and I still get goosebumps every time I say this, but Opportunity kept roving the red planet until 2018, over 14 years into its 90-day expected lifetime. Now, 
audience members who might be listening to this might be thinking, well, that's great. It's amazing that this person was able to ask a question that reframed the problem, but how do you actually come up with the right question to ask? And one of the tactics I offer in the book is to is to di differentiate between what we call strategy and tactics. Those terms are often used interchangeably, but they refer to different things. So a strategy is a plan for achieving an objective. Tactics are the actions you take, the tools you use to actually implement the strategy. To reframe the problem, to zoom out and to find the strategy, ask yourself, what problem is this tactic here to solve? So if you frame the problem more broadly as the risk involved in landing on Mars, not just as a defective landing mechanism, sending two rovers instead of one decreases risk and increases reward. So that's one way of zooming out and, and asking a question that other people are missing. But the moral of the story here is breakthroughs, contrary to popular wisdom, don't begin with a smart answer. They often begin with a smart question. So then how do I take that thinking into a much more mundane situation and, and apply it there? Because that, that's a big, I, I'm, not, I'm not designing rovers to go to Mars. So how would this work in my life? Stanford professor Tina Selig runs this exercise in one of her classes on entrepreneurship. She walks into the class, she divides up the class into different teams and gives each team $5 in, in funding. And she tells them, your goal is to make as much money as possible in two hours and then give a three-minute presentation to the class. Most teams use the $5 to you know, start a car wash or go back to their like six-year-old days and, and set up a lemonade stand. Uh, one team had the idea of putting it all on red at the roulette table. But those teams tend to bring up the rear in the class. The more successful teams reframe the problem more broadly. They leave the tactic aside, the tactic being the $5 bill. They realize that that tactic is essentially a worthless and distracting resource. Instead, they frame the more problem more broadly as, how can we make the most amount of money if we start with absolutely nothing? So one team, one particularly successful team, ended up making reservations at popular Silicon Valley restaurants and then selling the reservation times to Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who wanted to skip the wait. That team made an, an impressive few hundred dollars in just two hours. But the team that came in first, they reframed the problem even more broadly. They realized that both the $5 and the two-hour time frame they had for making the most amount of money as possible were not the most valuable resources in their arsenal. Rather, the most valuable resource in their arsenal was this three-minute presentation time before a captivated Stanford class. They sold that three-minute time to a company interested in recruiting Stanford students and walked away with like $650. So that's one, one example of, of how the same strategy of zooming out from the tactic and asking yourself, well, what is this $5 here to solve can help you see approaches and different perspectives that you might otherwise miss. What's interesting about that is my first reaction was that if the teacher gave me $5 and said, use this to make the most money you can, then I would have thought, well, I have to use the $5. But what you're saying is the successful teams 
completely discarded the $5. That didn't, wasn't, didn't even play into their solution. What often happens is we have a tactic in front of us. And again, in this case, it's the $5 bill, but it might be something else in your life that you're used to doing. And as the saying goes, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So tactics, tools can be the subtlest of traps because we feel compelled to use them, number one, and, and use them in the same way that we've been using them before. But if you ask yourself, what is this tactic here to solve? Once you frame the problem more broadly in terms of what you're trying to accomplish instead of your favorite solution or favorite tactic, you'll be able to discover other possibilities lurking in plain sight. Okay, great. So give me another rocket science way of thinking. One other strategy is a principle from rocket science called test as you fly, fly as you test. And so it's a, it's a simple principle from, from the rocket world, which essentially says that experiments or tests on Earth must mimic to the greatest extent possible the same conditions in flight. So for example, during simulations for space shuttle missions, scientists activated like close to 7,000 malfunction scenarios and they threw every imaginable failure at the crew. The more ca catastrophic, the better. And the idea here is that repeated exposure to problems in an environment that's going to closely simulate space flight will inoculate the astronauts and boost their confidence in their ability to um, diffuse just about any issue. Now, if you apply that principle to our own lives, most of us do experiments or simulations in conditions that don't mimic reality. So we give, for example, a mock presentation in front of a friendly audience. Uh, we do mock job interviews while wearing sweatpants with you know, our spouse or partner who is going to ask us a predetermined list of questions. If you're training for a triathlon, uh, chances are that you're probably running on a treadmill somewhere while watching Netflix. If you apply the test as you fly principle in your life, you would make sure that the training conditions closely mimic uh, reality. So for example, if you're going to be, if you're training to give a, an important presentation, you would practice that presentation in front of a group of strangers. Uh, you might also down a few espressos, I've done this before, <laughs> Few, down a few espressos before you actually give the practice speech to simulate the types of jitters that you might get in real life. If you're training for a triathlon, do it outside and do it under very similar conditions, facing the rain, the wind, whatever conditions you might be facing on, on, on race day so you can be desensitized to those questions um, before race day actually arrives. Well, that's interesting because you say that's a, a rocket scientist way of thinking. And yet, it's really kind of common sense that if you want to do something well in real life, practice it as close to real life as possible. It seems pretty intuitive if you remember to do that. Exactly. It is intuitive, although most people don't do it and most businesses don't do it either. I mean, in the business world, a lot of um, surveys, experiments and focus groups are run in conditions that don't resemble reality at all. And so those tests, those focus groups, end up spitting incorrect answers. So many sportswear companies, for example, when they're designing a shoe, will ask potential customers, how much money would you pay for this pair of shoes? Um, that is not a very good test because customers don't 
get that question in real life. No one walks up to them in an actual store and asks, how much would you pay for this pair of shoes? So if you really want to know how much your customers would pay for your service or product, you should apply the test as you fly, fly as you test principle, which is actually sell something to them. Uh, actually ask them to walk into a store, pick up this pair of shoes or go to your website and, and buy your product and see if they're willing to pull out their wallets and, and, and their credit card numbers and actually input that in. That's the, that's the best way to, to gauge popularity or consumer response is to, to decrease that gap between the experiment and the actual flight, which unfortunately many businesses don't do. And yet it makes all the sense in the world. Hey, we're learning how to think like a rocket scientist, and we're doing that with Ozan Varol, who was a rocket scientist, now a law professor and author of the book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist. A shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, for as long as I can remember, I have had to deal with seasonal allergies. Stuffy nose, watery eyes, the whole deal. And the worst for me is it messes up my sleep. I wake up because I can't breathe right. And during the day, well, you know, if I'm working and I'm all stuffed up, then my voice sounds weird and this is how I make my living. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. I use it and if you struggle with allergies, you should too. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've been using Claritin-D for years because, well, it just, it takes care of the problem. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin-D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin-D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Ozan, what's, a, what's another strategy for thinking like a rocket scientist? Sure. Another one is called first principles thinking. And I'll also illustrate this with a with a story from SpaceX and Elon Musk. When Elon Musk was first thinking about sending a rocket to Mars, he went shopping for rockets on the American market. Um, they were way too expensive, even for his own budget. So he went to Russia uh, to shop for 
I kid you not, decommissioned intercontinental ballistic missiles <laughs> without the nuclear warheads on top, of course. And even the Russian rockets were, were way too expensive. And he was about to give up until he realized that his approach was deeply flawed. He was on a flight back from Russia from one of his shopping sprees empty-handed. He had an epiphany. And he arrived at that epiphany using a principle from physics called first principles thinking. First principles thinking requires you to hack through existing assumptions in your life as if you're hacking through a jungle until you're left with the fundamental components. Everything else is negotiable. So instead of letting your original vision or the visions of other people around you, your competitors, your peers, shape the path forward, you abandon all allegiances to them. You, um, you switch from being a cover band that plays somebody else's songs to an artist that does the painstaking work of creating something new. So in trying to buy rockets that other people had built, Elon Musk realized that he was playing the role of a cover band. And for Musk, using first principles meant starting with the laws of physics and just asking himself, what's required to launch a rocket? He stripped a rocket down to a smallest subcomponents, its fundamental raw materials. And it turns out that if you buy those raw materials on the market and build the rockets from scratch, it was around like 2% of the typical price, which is a crazy ratio. So Musk decided to build his next generation rockets from scratch. If you walk through the halls of SpaceX's factories, you'll notice people doing everything from welding titanium to building and flight computers. First principles thinking prompted SpaceX and also Jeff Bezos's uh, space company, Blue Origin, to question another deeply held assumption in rocket science. For decades, most rockets that launched spacecraft into outer space could not be reused. They would plunge into the ocean or burn up in the atmosphere after carrying their cargo to orbit, requiring an entirely new rocket to be built. Now imagine for a moment doing the same thing for commercial flights. You know, you fly from Portland, Oregon, where I am, to New York City, after the passengers deplane, somebody walks up to the plane and just torches it. <laughs> That's basically what we did for rockets. The, the, cost, the cost of a, um, a modern rocket is about the same as a Boeing 737, but flying on a 737 is far less expensive because jets, unlike rockets, can be flown over and over again. And so SpaceX and Blue Origin are both uh, in the process of changing that. Both companies have refurbished and reused numerous recovered rocket stages, sending them back out to space like certified pre-owned vehicles. So those two stories illustrate the importance of questioning assumptions in your life and applying first principles thinking. There's a, uh, a quote I love from Alan Alda that's often misattributed to Isaac Asimov, but he says, your assumptions are your windows on the world. Scrub them off every once in a while or the light won't come in. How do you do that? Well, ask yourself from time to time, what am I doing simply because I've done it before? Or what am I doing simply because others around me are doing it? Can I question that assumption and replace it with something new? Sometimes, though, you know, we do it this way because it really is the best way. And it's all, sometimes hard to know, is a new way better or is a new way just a new way that's different and maybe not better? That's a great question. I think the, the best way to find out the answer is to conduct tests. So just take one day and do something differently and see what results it produces. Um, and if 
and scientists certainly approach problems this way too. They have hypotheses and they try their hypothesis. They test it. If it works, great. If it doesn't, that's great too, because now you learned that this alternative way of doing something isn't better. And what you were doing before is the best way to do it. I think though many of us get stuck in a rut because we don't ask ourselves these questions and we don't conduct these limited experiments to see what we're missing and to figure out if there is actually a better way of doing something. Well, who hasn't heard the the advice to question your assumptions, but it's hard to question your assumptions because assumptions are very automatic and hard to, to dissect. One really helpful way to question assumptions is to bring outsiders into the conversation. Expertise is really valuable, but experts are often too ingrained in what's worked in the past. So if you've been doing something the same way for years, it's really hard, even if you're asking yourself these questions, to see what you might be missing. So it's helpful to bring in someone, and this, by the way, doesn't have to be an expensive consultant or speaker. It can be as simple as bringing someone from a different division or different project. It can be your partner, your spouse, one of your colleagues who knows nothing about what you're working on. Because um, those individuals, amateurs, are great at asking those quote unquote dumb questions that actually aren't dumb at all, that jolt you out of your current perspective and expose the assumptions that you're operating under. Uh, this, by the way, is part of the reason why I think Elon Musk and, and Jeff Bezos have been, able to, have been able to disrupt the aerospace industry because they were outsiders to it. Elon Musk came from Silicon Valley. Jeff Bezos was in, uh, well, the finance world before he entered retail. But because they were outsiders, these gate crashes were able to see the assumptions that many of the insiders were, were operating under. Because conventional wisdom is easier to tune out when you don't know what the conventional wisdom is. Um, one of my favorite stories about the value of insiders, or outsiders, I should say, is, is uh, from uh, J.K. Rowling, who's the author of Harry Potter. When she submitted the first Harry Potter book to publishers, the publishers were unanimous in their opinion. They thought that the book was not worth printing. Until, so about a dozen publishers rejected the book until it landed on the desk of Nigel Newton, who's the head of um, Bloomsbury Publishing in the United Kingdom. And Newton saw promise in the book when others had missed it. What was the secret? Well, he took the draft back home and gave it to his eight-year-old bookworm daughter, Alice. Alice took the book to her room, read it, came back down, and said, Dad, this is so much better than anything else I've read. And that input from eight-year-old Alice convinced her dad to write a, a meager 2,500-pound check to J.K. Rowling to acquire the rights to publish the first Harry Potter book. And this is, by the way, the best bet <laughs> made in publishing history since J.K. Rowling is now a, a billion-dollar author. But the, what gave Newton his advantage was his willingness to get the opinion of an outsider who was part of the target audience for for the book but an outsider to to the publishing industry and alice was able to see what all of these experts in publishing had missed 
Well, I love that Harry Potter example because you can just imagine people saying, well, you know, she's eight years old. She doesn't really know how the publishing world works or she doesn't know what really makes a book sell. And she was more right than all the other publishers that rejected the book and and all the experts who said, oh, you, you just can't do that. Exactly, exactly. And and the Harry Potter story, by the way, also harkens back to another strategy that we already talked about, which is test as you fly, fly as you test, right? So it's one thing to run a young adult book by experts in the publishing industry who are what in their 40s, 50s, who are not the target audience for the book. But if you actually want to test as you fly, fly as you test, give the book as Nigel, Nigel Newton did to a member of the target audience and see what they think about the book because they're the ones who are going to be buying it, who are going to be reading it. So it makes sense to, to ask them. Well, great. Well, this has been fun. Uh, I feel smarter. I'm not sure I'm going to be designing and sending rockets into space, but but uh, maybe think a little more like a rocket scientist. Ozan Valor has been my guest. He is or, or was a rocket scientist. He is now a law professor, podcaster, and author of the book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist. There's a link to his book in the show notes, and if you use that link to buy the book, Ozan has some really great bonuses that he will give you that you won't get if you buy the book somewhere else. So click on the link in the show notes if you want to buy his book. Thanks, Ozan. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Have you ever stopped to think how amazing it is that all over this country, all over the world, so many people start their day with a cup of coffee? And some go on to have two, three, four, or more cups of coffee. Coffee is the world's beverage, delivering a nice big punch of caffeine along with every cup. So how did this happen? How did so many millions and millions of people become slaves to coffee all over the world? Well, it turns out, as you might imagine, it's a pretty interesting story, and one that Augustine Sedgwick has investigated and explored. Augustine is a teacher at City University in New York. He got his Ph.D. from Harvard, and he's written a book called Coffee Land, One Man's Dark Empire and the Making of Our Favorite Drug. Hey, Augustine. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. So, obviously, it takes a whole book to explain this story, but in a nutshell, how did coffee become such a big part of so many people's lives? We don't even think about it, but... Uh, imagine not having your cup of coffee in the morning and people freak out. I mean, how, how did it become so important? It is uh, really, as you mentioned, so common and yet so extraordinary. Coffee and its namesake ingredient, caffeine, are used by as much as 90% of the people on the planet just to meet the demands of everyday life. So where does the story begin? Where, who, whose idea was it to take these beans and cook them up and make a beverage and drink it? First people who started using coffee as a beverage were Sufi monks in Yemen in the 15th century. And they used it because they wanted to stay, they wanted to stay awake and stay up all night praying. And for a long time, coffee had this association with religious rituals. And so when people wanted to do the thing that they judged most important in the world, which is pray, they used coffee to help them do it for extended periods of time. 
And then what happened that when did the, the marketing campaign kick in where it went from a couple of monks uh, in the 15th century to everybody today? Yeah, it's a long, long way from uh, there to here. Coffee spread widely through the Ottoman Empire in the, in the 16th century, which is where the first Europeans encountered it around the turn of the 17th century. Um, it became a popular very quickly in, in England and in London especially. Coffee was tea before tea in British culture. But even so, even when coffee began to become popular in Europe, there was disagreement about uh, its effects on the body and how it changed people who drank it. I mean, women in London in the 17th century complained that it made men uh, um, lazy and impotent. Uh, Employers at the same time celebrated coffee because it made their clerks and their apprentices uh, more efficient and more alert. So and this, these disagreements about coffee really continued for, for centuries, and, and the difficulty of understanding coffee's consequences, on the, or consequences for the human body continued for centuries, and coffee really didn't become a mass beverage until the middle of the 19th century, the end of the 19th century. And that was the consequence of, first of all, the transformation of vast areas of the um, global landscape, and especially in Latin America, into coffee monocultures but also at the same time the rise of truly exhausting ways of life in uh, much of the industrialized global north. Really? So it was, it was the fact that people were so tired that coffee caught on? They were so tired, and coffee was something that was increasingly available in large quantities for low prices, thanks to the transformation of the global landscape into a coffee plantation. Yes, absolutely. And so it wasn't so much that uh, people loved it so much as they needed it. I think that's that's largely the case, and we have we have developed a way of appreciating coffee in the same way that we learn to appreciate all the things that we we need. You say that it it really caught on in in the what in the mid eighteen hundreds. Yes, so roughly uh, the second half of the 19th century is when, in the United States, is when coffee became a mass beverage for the first time in its in its global history. Which, uh, at that point, was you know between 300 and 400 years after the introduction of coffee drinking. Only then did it become truly a mass drink. And you said that coffee was tea before tea was tea. That in other words, that it, coffee was a big beverage in England. So what happened? How did tea take its place? British Crown granted the East India Company a tea monopoly and uh, won access to Chinese ports in the early 18th century. And after that, tea, which had been um, scarcer and more expensive in England, actually flooded into the British market and, and supplanted coffee for centuries in England, which is, which now today is again a very, uh, very um, rich coffee drinking society, but uh, obviously for centuries. Uh, was dominated by tea, both its culture and its imperial politics, which led, of course, to the uh, Boston Tea Party. Is coffee, do you think, so popular because it is just so wonderfully delicious and we all just enjoy the ritual, or are we just hooked on it? Is it, is it just an addicting drug and that's why it's so popular? That's a tremendously interesting question to me and a tremendously complex question. We... Most of us use coffee because we use it to adapt our bodies to the demands of modern life. Uh, 
the way that we began thinking about coffee as especially useful and appropriate for that purpose really dates to about a century ago, the 1920s, when um, Brazilian coffee growers teamed up with American coffee roasters to uh, fund scientific studies that would that would resolve this lingering ambiguity about whether coffee was good for you or bad for you. And the the studies that the coffee growers and roasters conducted drew heavily on um, previous research funded by Coca-Cola Company, which found that caffeine um, was a boon to work. And the studies concluded that coffee and caffeine were not things to be wary of or suspicious of or fearful of, but on the contrary, kind of a, a miracle drug or a wonder drug, and especially a source of instant energy precisely at those moments when you most needed the ability to do some extra work. Was there, has there been a big successful marketing campaign, and that's why pretty much the whole world drinks coffee? Or is it more that you know, people start to drink it, and then they get hooked on it, and their friends see them drink it, so hey, I'll try that, and then they get hooked on it, and it's just a drink that contains a very addictive drug, and that's why the whole world drinks it. Well, that's the fascinating thing, is our way of thinking about coffee as a, as a work drug, as a kind of miracle drug, that, you know, the thing that we all need when we don't have any more energy or, or can't, can't go on or have to get up for another morning and do this, this thing, our way of, of using coffee that way, um, our way of using, using coffee for that purpose is very much the result of marketing campaigns. There's no reason why we couldn't uh, consume caffeine in, in, in some other form, whether it's Coca-Cola or, or Red Bull or, or what have you, but we have developed all these associations around coffee that make it seem not only useful but also delicious. And, and, and from the perspective of someone who both uses coffee and enjoys it, it, it is delicious. It's wonderful. Who are some of the big or more interesting players in the game that that you talk about that that either helped or hurt or whatever? The book is a history of coffee that uh, takes in you know five hundred years and more or less every corner of the globe, but it's told to the story of of one man uh, named James Hill, and James Hill was born in Manchester, England, in the slums of Manchester, England, in the late nineteenth century. Um, <clears throat> he, the best thing that could happen to you if you were a young man from the slums of Manchester, England at that time was that you could get a job selling the things that Manchester made around the world. So Hill, when he was 18, got a job as a textile salesman that took him to Central America. And once in Central America, which was then undergoing a, a dramatic coffee boom, Hill married well into a family that had coffee plantations. And he imported into Central America ideas from industrial factories in Manchester that helped him build extremely efficient and productive plantations and helped him not only transform that uh, country in uh, El Salvador in a profound way, but also build a family coffee business that is still one of the world's leading uh, coffee dynasties to this day. There are a lot of different brands of coffee, and those different brands have different reputations, and the coffee may maybe tastes different. What about some of those? 
I write a lot about Hills Brothers Coffee, which was the great uh, San Francisco-based coffee roaster. They had a trademark red cans that featured a picture on the front of the cans of uh, an Arab, and they they became a household brand in the uh, middle of the 20th century in the United States, um, in part by celebrating the quality of the coffee that they were getting from James Hill and others in Central America against the coffee that was coming in from Brazil and which was tended to be seen as a kind of uh, uh, a low-quality, low-price coffee. So already, even then, within the supermarket era of coffee drinking, there were distinctions based on provenance and place, um, such as like those we see today. But of course, today, we're, we're, uh, they, they've been taken to an entirely new level where we're encouraged to understand the specific plantation where the beans came from and its elevation and you know what uh, um, tasting notes to discover in those beans and we're being encouraged by the coffee industry actually to appreciate coffee as people appreciate wine and one reason for that of course is that if we think of coffee more like wine well uh, then we'll pay more we'll be willing to pay more for it and and surely it's true that you couldn't get coffee from one single plantation in a supermarket in the mid-20th uh, century United States. And therefore, if you buy this direct trade, single-origin coffee today, and um, you know it comes from one plantation, then you can have a different experience of drinking that coffee than you, would, than you could have had uh, at, in another era. Well, every coffee drinker knows and has had the experience that different coffee from different places taste different. You know, Starbucks coffee tastes different than McDonald's coffee, tastes different than Dunkin' Donuts coffee, and it all tastes different than the coffee I get at the supermarket that I make in my kitchen. So what is the difference? Is the difference the beans? Is the difference the process? What is it? It's a great question. What varies, what you could taste, is Probably the differences in processing, including roasting and packing, right? roasting and grinding and packing and, and even preparation. Um, I think you, it would probably be, be easier to distinguish between coffee on that basis than on saying, well, this coffee is clearly from El Salvador and this one's from uh, Indonesia and this one's from Ethiopia. What you can taste are differences in processing. And, and, and that's so interesting to me specifically that we attribute variations in our experiences of coffee drinking to the beans themselves, when in fact what we're really experiencing are differences in the work that has gone into making those beans available to us. And there's a very great uh, distinction between those things that is not uh, fully appreciated when you're just, um, you know, trying to figure out if you can detect the notes of um, mango and, and peach in your cup. Can you? Can you detect the notes of mango and peaches in your cup? <laughs> my, I have one. I have one criterion for for my coffee. If it was made recently and it's hot, then that's good enough for me. Well, you're not much of a coffee snob, and and I think I think you and I could drink out of the same pot just fine. Why did how did Seattle become such a big coffee place? Yeah, that's a great question. Regional coffee cultures did 
differ based on the parts of the world to which they were connected. For example, San Francisco did a lot of business, which was which was where Hills Brothers uh, Coffee Roasters was based and Folgers was based. They did a lot of business uh, with Central America because of the trade routes and the geographical connections that developed there. New York did a lot of business with Brazil for the for the um, same reason. The coffee cultures in those places were notably different. The iconic New York cup is you know the diner cup. The iconic uh, San Francisco cup was was marketed to be was advertised to be a kind of high quality cup. The rise of Seattle as a as a coffee capital, especially as the capital of kind of a um, an especially flavorful or high quality or expensive coffee, comes from that much longer history of the coffee trade between San Francisco and Central America. Starbucks was based on a Berkeley area chain called Pete's, and it was Pete. Uh, Pete's Coffee Shop drew on Central America coffees to market uh, coffees to Bay Area, Bay Area residents that were um, uh, worth their money, worth extra money, were, were uh, special and delicious and, and, and wonderful. And Starbucks based its business on, on very much on that model and on the economic networks it drew on. You had mentioned a moment ago that much of what you taste in coffee isn't about the bean as much as it's about what happens once the bean is picked. And, and I don't think people really get a sense of that because, I, because that's not the way it's pitched. It's really pitched as the best beans, Arabica beans. Our beans are only from this place. And that, that, that's the real selling point, that the beans are so special. And, uh, and, and, but you're saying that that's really not the case. Right. It makes a lot of sense to me that, you know, the owners of particular plots of land in coffee-producing places around the world would want to promote an idea that the value of coffee came from the plant, and the plant took it in, in turn from the land itself, rather than from the people who worked that land and, and tended the plant and picked the beans and processed the beans into an export-ready commodity and, and so on and so forth. That story about the labor that it has taken to develop these places into plantations and, and produce the coffee that uh, grows there and is exported from there, um, you know, is excluded from this story that encourages us to see the, the value in the bean itself. Where are we uh, in the graph? Is coffee on the increase? Is it on the decrease? Is it pretty much a plateau? Uh, where are we? Well, you know, the, the coffee industry has been worried about this question for a very long time, and probably, uh, you know, ever since, uh, you know, it became cool to, um, for James Dean to drink a bottle of uh, Coca-Cola in a white T-shirt leaning on a hot rod or something like this. The coffee industry has been concerned that young people especially are going to get their caffeine from other places. Uh, and to some extent, they do. You know, much of the caffeine that's consumed around the world now uh, surely takes the, uh, comes in the form of, uh, you know, brightly colored um, 24-ounce cans of energy drink and, 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 and things like this, which, you know, just uh, always for some reason, even though they contain the same thing as coffee, seem completely horrifying to me. They, they uh, are really not, not fundamentally different from coffee. I would say that the the graph of caffeine consumption keeps going up and up and up and up. Um, the graph of coffee consumption uh, 
is probably uh, significantly flatter. Well, it may be flatter, but it sure represents an awful lot of people, me, you, and pretty much everybody I know. My guest has been Augustine Sedgwick. He is a teacher at City University in New York, and he's author of the book Coffee Land, One Man's Dark Empire, and the Making of Our Favorite Drug. There's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Augustine. Oh, thanks very much. Bye. Sure, we all know that fruits and vegetables are good for us, but did you know they can actually make you more attractive? Researchers use something called a spectrophotometer to measure the absorption of light at different locations on the body, such as the cheeks, forehead, forearms, and shoulders. The meter revealed a significant enhanced pigmentation in those people who ate more fruits and vegetables. When photos of the participants were rated, those with the produce pigmentation consistently scored as more attractive. Fruits and vegetables increase the amount of carotenoids in the skin, which enhances our natural yellow and reds, making us appear healthier. Four servings a day are enough to notice a difference. And that is something you should know. I just read an article the other day that said podcast binge listening is up because people have a lot of time to kill. And if you do, well, we have 300 episodes to binge on. So feel free to binge away. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.